Hello. Uh, it's about 30 seconds after noon, so it's good afternoon. And welcome to the Cancer Center Ground Rounds, to everybody who is here and also the uh, people who attend uh, online. Um, it's a privilege to, for me to introduce the speaker. Um, we'll start with the conflicts. It says they are men free of conflict, so he does not have any conflicts to declare. He will not introduce any investigational uh, or off-label use, and he's not paid by a commercial entity for this lecture. Um, all of you know Brad, um, he has been here for a while. Uh, preparing for this introduction, I learned that he is a California transplant into the Upper Valley, where he has been for many years. Um, 30? Okay. <laughs> uh, I would say that's a good period of time. That's, you like it. Uh, he uh, did his undergraduate at Wesleyan uh, with summa cum laude, and then did medical school at Cornell, and then a PhD uh, across the street at the Rockefeller Institute. Um, he came to Dartmouth and kind of worked on TGF beta signaling and breast cancer while also treating uh, patients with breast cancer. Um, then he broadened his kind of approach and uh, was a section chief for about 10 years, and with an additional four years being an acting section chief. So it's a clinical care research and administrative responsibilities. Um, he saw the light and decided to get another degree um, in healthcare, uh, healthcare management. Uh, which he did at Harvard, and he's an MD, a PhD, and a master, as you see there. Uh, but when he really saw the light is uh, by starting and growing a familial cancer program at the Cancer Center, which is probably the uh, most vibrant familial cancer program in the in the state and maybe in the two states. So he will tell us about genetic testing for all, um, and we'll have questions at the end. So, Brad, thank you. I assume it's working. Uh, anyway, uh, and I'm going to, over through the course of time, I want to make the case uh, that comprehensive genetic testing for all cancer patients represents sort of a true form of patient and family-centered care. And I want to emphasize the word family in this context. Uh, it plays a major role in diagnosis, perhaps less so, but treatment options. Uh, Dr. Domchek talked about that in terms of PARP inhibitors. Uh, it helps for some people to address some bedeviling questions they have. Why did this happen to me? Uh, and furthermore, many patients, uh, even though they may not express it first off, uh, have great concerns about their family. What about my family? 
uh, and two major components that I think most uh, centers don't adequately address are the financial impact that for the family. Will I, will I leave them in financial ruin uh, when I'm all done with my treatments? And secondly, did I pass something on to my children, in fact? And so in this context, I, I want to start with an, an unfortunate, I don't want to start with an unfortunate story, but I'm going to start with an unfortunate story of two families, knew nothing of each other, both had uh, an individual who might well have had genetic testing at some point because of uh, a breast cancer at a young age. Uh, but what happened was uh, uh, there was a meeting, the three M's, three important, meet, marry, and mate. Well, really two M's are important here, meet and mate. <laughs> and they had a little boy who was microcephalic, low birth weight, uh, low birth at weight, and turned out to in fact have Fanconi anemia. Uh, this being, uh, who, does anyone know who this is? Well, Fanconi, Guido Fanconi. And despite the name, uh, I learned he was a Swiss pediatrician, not an Italian. Uh, and Fanconi anemia is characterized uh, by lots of very severe illnesses, AML, solid tumors, uh, bone marrow failure. And, and, and uh, the BRCA2 gene, when in the homozygous state, uh, mutated, is one of the many uh, genotypic uh, features that uh, leads to Fanconi anemia. And I guess my point being that if, in fact, these folks had gotten genetic testing and that led to a, a serious conversation and discussion about how it might impact the rest of the family, like her nephew or her cousin, uh, the fact that those two are carriers of BRCA2 might well have already been known and Measures could have been taken uh, in, in during uh, their uh, early uh, attempts at having children to figure that out. So this is a little Rorschach test for you. I don't want anyone to tell me what they think this is. Um, <laughs> keep it to yourself. Uh, but in any conversation I, 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 I lead to in uh, about uh, heritability of cancer, I like to uh, touch base with uh, the Scandinavian Peninsula and a very unique uh, tumor registry that's been going on for quite some time called the NORCAN twin, a, a, a consortium of, of, uh, the, uh, of these uh, countries, which has been going on for some time and has collected, uh, as of 2013, uh, been following over a quarter of a million individuals who have a twin. And the key issue here, or the key feature, is that twins come in two types, monozygotic and dizygotic. And uh, assuming they grow up together, they have generally a very shared environment uh, and share either half or all of the DNA. And the distinctions between the two is used by this group to uh, tease out and identify and give some numbers to what, what they might think is the relative proportion of heritability versus shared environment in cancer diagnosis. Uh, and as you can see, they've been follow they have a long median follow-up, and, and there have been nearly 30,000 cancer diagnoses in this, in this cohort. So recently they updated their curves, uh, and um, for all of the twins, um, this is the cumulative incidence of cancer, which did not differ significantly over, over age, up to age 100. The Scandinavians, I guess, live quite long. Uh, that didn't differ from the population. So this, they felt this was a, these twins were a fair representation of the 
Scandinavian population. And what you can see is uh, when they categorize the familial risk, which is basically just the risk of developing any cancer if their twin developed any cancer. So this is not concordant cancers, but just two cancers. And you already it was clear that dizygotic twins had a higher risk than just two random unrelated people, which would be this curve. And monozygotic twins had a significantly higher rate. And then uh, delving deep into uh, the uh, concordance of the two cancers, they came up with this table where they would tease out or give a sense of what percent of the cancer is the cancer risk is heritable and what percent might be shared environment. And that some of the two, two of the top ones are, oops, there we go, uh, melanoma and prostate cancer, uh, with clearly at least maybe half felt, felt to be of some heritable component. Uh, but others are high up on the list here for a strong heritable component. And interestingly also, uh, they also are able to identify in some areas like lung cancer, which may be a reflection of the environment, the secondhand smoking, or, or the, the tendency for smoking to run through families, but a significantly shared uh, environmental component for lung cancer as well as a few others. So this tells us there's a lot of heritable component to predisposition. So when we're talking about heritable predisposition to cancer, uh, it's always helpful, and you see different types of this figure. I have uh, my own version of it, but this is one from a recent review that, that uh, chart them on, a, on an axis of the allele frequency, how common is this in the, in the population, and relative risk for, for cancer. And so there's some that are uh, fairly uncommon but have a higher risk, and then there's some that tend to be a little bit more common but a moderate risk. And then out here would be the SNPs, uh, which are even more common but still not, you know, they're, they're uh, at much higher frequency in the population but a very small relative risk for cancer. Okay. And that, so this one is for breast, and this is a, a similar one for colon cancer, but I, I generally have, those have been in other my talks, I've used this slide a lot, where I put them into these three categories, high risk and rare, moderate risk and moderate frequency, and uh, low penetrance and more common. Penetrance, uh, just to make sure we're all on the same term, penetrance would be the, uh, what is the likelihood over time that that individual will, sh will have the phenotype, which in this case is cancer, given a particular genotype. And the, these, the two uh, here are generally uh, inherited as Mendelian traits and, uh, excuse me, as you can see, have variable penetrance. And the SNPs uh, are, tend to have an additive effect. And so, although I won't be going that much into it, a little bit later, uh, people can create a polygenic or poly-SNP profile <coughs> and add them up in terms of uh, their impact on individuals' risk for cancer. So some of the reasons that, that have been around for a long time for why people get referred to genetic testing or here locally to our familial cancer program would be either some just the diagnosis of cancer, and, and now there's some tumor types where it's standard guidelines that everybody with that diagnosis, like epithelial ovarian cancer, should be referred for genetic testing. Uh, 
Other tumors of very rare types, automatic, it was very clear from the very beginning, they should automatically be referred. Uh, and then when family history meets certain guidelines. So guidelines, what are guidelines for? Why do we have them? Uh, the, the guidelines that, that we're going to talk about, or I'm going to sort of refer to and, and trash a little bit, uh, were initially formulated uh, in this country to target about an a priori risk of 10%. So that if you use what, the best models to estimate what's the chance this individual is a carrier, if they met that 10% threshold one way or another, it was a go. Uh, in uh, Great Britain, the National Health Service initially started off with a 20% Threshold. They've since dropped down to 10. Um, and so uh, as we've understood things more, and, and by the way, one, the, it's important to keep, also keep in mind that cost was part of it. And I have yet to see an actual uh, cost-benefit analysis for why, why they chose this. And I don't know why they chose 10%. It wasn't me. Um, but what I want to do now is talk about some of the... Um, uh, um, Test the, the, some of the studies that have been done recently where the guidelines have been disregarded. And what have we found? Either testing a consecutive series of patients or patients who met a certain criteria that, had, that was not necessarily guideline specific. Okay? And we'll, I'll just give you a little update on each of these tumor types. Renal cell. So the, here's a study uh, published uh, last year where they consecutively looked at a number of individuals with advanced renal cell carcinoma and find that, and here they're doing a whole panel, not, not a limited number of genes. Uh, so they looked not just at renal cell-associated mutations where you might just test, but other cancers as well. And 16% were found to carry a pathogenic germline mutation that we think of as actionable in the sense that we have some sense of perhaps relevant screening guidelines or uh, prevention strategies. Uh, and interestingly, uh, a good chunk of these, 58% of this group, 36% of that group, would have been missed if you were rigid in your application of the guidelines and not tested. Mesothelioma, 12% were found to have an actionable germline mutation, BAT1 being not only associated with this, but uh, Melanoma, especially uveal melanoma, uh, uh, and, and others. So it's, uh, you find lots of genes, and here also, nearly half, you would not have found if you stuck to and felt the guidelines were, were um, your barriers, which unfortunately some insurance companies do. Prostate cancer, 12% nearly of unselected patients. This is metastatic uh, in similar series with Early stage would have smaller numbers, but uh, again, uh, a significant part, portion would not have been found. And one of the interesting things I found, uh, just, I just want to throw it in there and show you that I can find some references from 2019 already and put them in here, was that uh, uh, distinguishing the prognosis, the outcome, depending on what the sequence of therapies that you applied, uh, in this case, whether you gave uh, androgen signaling inhibitor before chemotherapy or the reverse in, in the metastatic setting. And the, those with a BRCA2 carrier status did much better or, uh, if you gave the uh, signaling inhibitor first, worse with taxane first. Okay. Interesting, very preliminary. 
but part of uh, a growing number of, of uh, studies that suggest that there may be some clear impact on therapeutic strategies. And here are a few of pancreatic cancer, uh, uh, looking at here unselected patients with pancreatic cancer, 8.4%, another unselected uh, population. Uh, so numbers close to up to 10%, with again, uh, at least half of these to not have been identified from guideline-based testing. And here's one, a recent study from breast cancer where uh, they found about 9% with uh, germline mutations. And only these would have been found by the guidelines, and these are all mutations found in individuals who didn't meet the guidelines. Now, of course, the, the, if you look at the whole list, the biggest one here is MUTE-YH, and you know, being a, single, a carrier of a single mutation in MUTE-YH isn't a big deal necessarily, and really has not much to do with breast cancer, but there are implications, and, and uh, as we learn more, it may be even more relevant. Um, uh, testicular cancer. Another 2019 reference uh, just came out. I just got emails about this, and close to 10% of unselected male with testicular germ cell were found to have a germline mutation. So going back to our original diagram here, just wanted to point out that the, those, that are, those mutations that are in the moderate or high risk are generally found within protein sequencing or splice sites or promoter <coughs> regions and therefore affect the expression, whereas uh, these are scattered throughout the genome and, and have more complex uh, uh, Im uh, impact on gene expression. Uh, and these are the ones that can be identified through gene panels because you're sequencing the, uh, the, the expression portion or whole exome sequencing, whereas these uh, would be found with more whole genome sequencing methods. And uh, these are not necessarily, it's, I don't want to, to pull these together. These, are, these can be of significant importance in determining the impact of the more prevalent, uh, sorry, the more penetrant, less prevalent uh, mutations by sort of amplifying or lessening the impact of one of these higher risk genes. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Uh, BRCA2 carriers with prostate cancer. I can be in a huge polygenic risk score analysis. Uh, this would have been the group as a whole. Uh, and if you could see that if you were in the, had a number of the SNPs that were also associated with high risk for prostate cancer, your risk would go up significantly. And the converse, it could go down. So you might say, well, would I really care if my risk was 5 versus 30? Well, you might. Um, and uh, how, to, how to screen for these patients might differ. Uh, but this would be an example of how the polygenic risk scores can interface with and amplify or attenuate the risk associated with the more uh, penetrant gene. Uh, and here we're looking at the risk of prostate cancer for males with BRCA1 mutations. I just want to point out here the different scales. So this scale is going up to 80. Sorry. This scale is going all the way up to 80, and this one's up to 40. So prostate cancer is clearly more associated with BRCA2 than BRCA1, and we saw that in the, in the diagram I showed before. So uh, sometimes also, a little, little uh, uh, it's kind of a little um, appetizers for what might come uh, as we study more, 
are what are the impact of identifying and learning about DNA germline mutations in patients that could influence their therapy, right? And we heard, again, from Dr. Jomchek about PARP inhibitors of great value for ovarian and breast cancer patients who carry BRCA mutations. Uh, we, uh, we, we also know, because it's now FDA approved, that certainly Lynch syndromes, but any tumor that has got the mismatch repair defect, which is a, a major feature of Lynch syndrome, uh, uh, can uh, be uh, respond to pembrolizumab, uh, and that's now an FDA-approved indication. Uh, there's also been, uh, this is uh, the more recent of them, but there have been uh, studies looking at the impact of some polymorphism in the TGF-beta gene, the TGF-beta promoter, which impacts fibrosis as a consequence or as, a, uh, as an adverse reaction to radiation therapy, whole breast radiation therapy, about a fourfold increase for one allele versus the other. And I stumbled upon just recently uh, a paper that, that looked at, uh, took a bunch of patients, a bunch of carriers, uh, normals and carriers of BRCA1 and 2, and, and looked at what, what was the degree of neutropenia that, was, that, that came about in cycle one. Most of these got FEC, which has a, a epirubicin uh, regimen in it, um, through cycle one, and there was a significant uh, marked increase in uh, the susceptibility of grade 4 neutropenia in the BRCA1 carriers. Don't know why, but there it is. So I hope I've given you, and I, went, I know I went quickly, but I hope I've given you a number of suggestions for why identifying germline mutations might really be a good thing. It might, uh, and we don't know, we just can't totally appreciate, but we give, got some early hints as to how important that might be for the patient, as well as for the family. So how well are we doing with this, uh, with testing? Well, uh, in, uh, in 2015, the National Health Service in Britain, which remember, they don't have, there's insurance coverage for all, so it's generally the guidelines that end the system in terms of uh, uh, referrals and so forth, but uh, asked the question of, well, how many have we, in, have we in fact identified in the general population? And the answer was 3%. So then they uh, looked at the rates and said, okay, if in the past few years we triple the rate of detection, how long will it take before we identify them? What, do you think it was, so one question, was it ten, next 10 years? Do you think that would be the case? Well, no, a long time before all mutation carriers might be identified with a tripling of the rate of identification. So this is a problem. And uh, one might then ask, well, what's the, what's the goal of these guidelines? What are guidelines for? Are they there to help insurance companies say no? Uh, are they there only to offer this to people who are most at risk? Is it, does it make sense for the guidelines to, by design almost, well, not by design, but indirectly by design, uh, exclude half of the people who, who otherwise would have been detected? Not clear, um, and that's that's clearly one of the issues. Uh, whether the guidelines should should remain as they are, uh, one of the methods, one of the strategies for expanding the reach of genetic testing is uh, uh, testing people when there's a known mutation, like I showed in the in the very first slide or in the first pedigree, where um, 
Fanconia anemia resulted. If there had been rigorous, uh, what we would call cascade testing through the family, uh, that might have been uh, at least a anticipated possibility in, in that in that pairing, that mating. Uh, and and now and now, as we and others are embarking upon much more uh, uh, the offering of testing of the somatic DNA in tumors to identify the many, many more mutations that exist that are features of that tumor that might be targets or predictors of prognosis. Uh, as you inevitably, if, if it was in the germline, it's going to be in the tumor. And uh, distinguishing which are tumor-derived and which actually were germline is something that uh, is going to, you got to do. Uh, and, and so for some patients now, we're getting referrals not because of their initial diagnosis or their family history, but because tumor testing has uh, brought them to the fore, brought them uh, uh, to our attention. So what are some strategies for uh, enhancing the carrier detection rate so that we might get much closer to identifying all the carriers? For a lot of these genes, by the way, there's a very low, some of them have a much higher, but certainly BRCA1 and 2, there's a very low de novo mutation rate meaning uh, it's most of the, just generally most of the mutations we identify can be traced back even thousands of years. And so uh, there's some hope that if you identify all the carriers, uh, you, can, uh, you're, you can be done, so to speak, with that part of it. And, I can, and we can close shop. Uh, so uh, here now, as, as usual, people get referred for to the familial cancer program at some point, point in their course or for one reason or another. Um, uh, but uh, a number of institutions have looked at the question of even if you make it uh, part of their normal process, uh, part of the diagnostic workup, which we would call mainstreaming, there would even be a difference between opt-in and opt-out. And uh, any of you who study economics uh, and behavioral economics understand that's very potent uh, determinant of, behavior, of human behavior. People who have to choose to enroll in their 401k as opposed to having to actively choose not to, that's what I mean. So there'd be a big difference in participation. And when, when uh, there was a switch from the opt-in strategy where you, you would tell the patient and you give them a brochure and say, hey, if interested, <laughs> give them a call. Or if interested, let me know. That would be opt-in. The opt-out category, that study where patients were were, weren't even asked initially. They were given the information and given an appointment. And then they could choose, it was clear then they can choose not to do it, but they were already part of the process. And that led to a huge increase in actual participation. So mainstreaming in one way or another uh, is, is kind of what I'm talking about. At some point, right at the get-go with diagnosis to introduce the concept and, and get her done with a panel. Okay, uh, and then you follow it up with cascade testing and uh, using the cancer, those diagnosed with cancer as an inroad to identify the unaffected uh, can uh, help alleviate some of the concern a lot of people have in terms of insurance discrimination, life insurance discrimination, uh, because people uh, uh, will already, those who might then go for testing because they know my, you know, my brother had this can work out whatever insurance coverage they want before they embark upon uh, germline genetic testing. 
Uh, of course, that means you've got to talk to the family. You've got to interact with the family, trace them down, help them. And uh, uh, just everybody in this room is, no one in this room is anywhere near as good as that as our genetic counselor, Kasha over there. Uh, and genetic counselors in general, that with their, with their, the much greater time they have to spend with the patients, talking with them about the impact on the family and their ability to connect people around the country with the right resources uh, really facilitates uh, the cascade testing for, for the family. And just to remind you, uh, so even if you had been, even if these providers had done this testing, chances are I would suspect, I'll just put it out there, that if this had been a medical oncologist or a surgeon who'd done this testing, they probably wouldn't have spent the time and the energy to help that patient work through how this might impact and then help this, her, her cousin or her nephew who might live far away or in another country uh, understand and get the right information and resources so they can choose to pursue or not the testing for themselves. Challenges, huge challenges. And we're not going to be able to talk about them all, but we will get into them uh, in the... Uh, in the questions session, but here I, I would pose it that the guidelines and insurance are an impediment. They, may, you know, they help I, people to remember. Oh yeah, I got to refer this patient. But if it was mainstream, wouldn't be dependent upon clinicians' recognition of the family history. Uh, so that's an impediment. VUSs, variants of unknown significance, a, a significant problem, and that is where a significant problem for communication and understanding these results. And that is where you identify a DNA alteration that is very uncommon, but may have no impact at all, just generally a missense mutation or a mutation somewhere that is really not clear if it has any impact on protein production or function. Uh, VUSs tend to be, or, ha or there's a high risk that they're misunderstood and conveyed uh, as, or, or uh, remembered by patients as an actual mutation related to cancer risk, and that's a problem because they're not. And the more you test, the more you see. Uh, there was uh, in a, I hope you didn't think I totally forget, forgot the paper from Sloan Kettering, uh, but in a, in a, there was a paper from Sloan that Steve is on where they looked at something like, there was 10,000 patients or something, did wide range panel testing, saw similar numbers of high rates of positivity, but also saw lots of VUSs. And I think I saw in there, the average patient had at least one or two of VUS. And they're very difficult to explain and trace and then keep track of uh, uh, in terms of what happens to the person, how do they learn about the further clarification or classification. Most of VUSs at some point get reclassified. The vast, vast majority of them after they've been seen enough times get reclassified as total benign <coughs> polymorphisms. So the VUS rate and proper interpretation is, is a problem uh, with, and it depends, uh, so for some genes like BRCA1 and 2, the, the understanding of what VUSs are pathogenic and which are not has been clarified for a number of the recurrent ones, but as we expand into more genes, VUSs will become more of a problem again. Another challenge is, is institutional as a whole which I think uh, undervalues cancer genetic testing, cancer genetic counselors. Um, uh, in, in an odd way, I mean, even uh, take Medicare, for instance, which, which does allow for it uh, and uh, does encourage genetic counselors but won't pay for it, right? Right, yeah, still won't, still won't pay for it. Um, 
and even this institution. Uh, we need more genetic counselors. And time and time again, I'm, I'm asked, well, how much money are they going to make? Well, uh, you know, what's their billing? And, and uh, what's the reimbursement rate? Uh, and uh, so e even within an single institution, there, there's just little understanding of, of why this is a resource that just can't be tied to the bill reimbursement of that particular individual. It's, it's much more of a, of, a, of a broader need for the community. Uh, and then finally, the understanding of risk, which uh, is sometimes not adequately portrayed in its age-specific manner. Because a lot of people, here's an example. Uh, there's a website you can go to uh, that I just drew, pulled this down from where you input a gene and, a, and an age of an individual, and they'll give you these charts for the penetrance estimate for the, whatever cancer you're talking about. And now, some people may say, OK, 40, close to 40% risk for ovarian cancer. Well, if you're sitting with this 26-year-old woman who's not married yet, doesn't have children, really wants to have children, you would be doing her a significant disservice if all you said was you have a 40% chance of ovarian cancer and we can help you by taking your ovaries out, right? She may, she may hold it together then, but, you, but that's absurd uh, because she might very well decide she can't have children. But if you, if, oops, but we like to focus uh, more on, well, what's going to happen in the next 10 years, right? I mean, 10 years, people can get their arms around. They can understand how does it impact my life, make my decisions, do some screening. Uh, and so if you're talking about her 10-year risk, there, there's the, 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 it's pretty flat here. And we w really wouldn't recommend uh, removing her ovaries uh, before she was done having children until into her 40s. And so understanding the age-specific penetrance and how it relates to your patient and her age is key. And that's, that's a problem because many providers and many of the uh, reports that come out uh, from the companies will just list in a paragraph lifetime risks, which, which may not apply, especially how, if they're young. Uh, it's also a problem for patients. Um, there have been a number of uh, uh, studies that have shown that individuals, uh, especially the, who've not had cancer, but those who come from families with very strong family histories, tend to overestimate uh, their risk for cancer. Hugely so. Um, and uh, we did a study and found pretty much the same thing. This, was a, this is a study where we uh, asked people before we embarked upon <clears throat> genetic counseling uh, what they thought their risk is. At first, they would identify what risk they're, what cancer they're talking about. So if they had a lot of ovarian cancer in their family, they say, I'm really worried about ovarian cancer. And then we, using a couple of tools, asked them, okay, tell us, what do you think your risk is for the next 10 years? And compared that to what uh, we, with the best modeling that we have available, determined what we thought their risk was. Uh, and the, as you can see, quite a number of people are overestimating their risk tenfold or more, uh, and many, many others fivefold or more. So there's a huge overestimation of risk in people. And that drives uh, perhaps inappropriate behaviors, inappropriate surgeries, inappropriate screening or certainly anxiety. And so, and the other thing we, we had learned as before we embarked on this study, the reason we designed the study was that uh, people were reporting that although you might, if you, uh, you might improve on their self-perception of what their risk is, generally if you ask them like six months later, uh, after they got counseling and, and could 
parrot back to you at the time what the right number was, they would revert back to their prior warped preconception. That counseling just doesn't stick. And there are a lot of psychological reasons why that might be for a lot of people with where this is sort of a family um, tradition to have ovarian cancer or something like that. They feel it's, it's part of their being. It's, it's part of who they are. And so it's hard to get them off that, off that <laughs> mark. So we did a study where we took patients, and uh, the, here's the baseline of one of those uh, measures, and randomly assigned them to get either standard counseling, as we normally do it, or an enhanced version, which we supplemented with a battery of visual aids that helped uh, convey the information in a more dynamic, engaged, um, visual way, rather than just a number. And then we came back and asked them, what do they think? So there was an initial follow-up about two weeks later. And here you can see in the standard counseling, there was some improvement. So rather than a third overestimating tenfold, that would drop quite a bit. Uh, and we'd have like a threefold or a doubling of the number of individuals who were accurate in their risk estimation. So that was good. But six months later, there was a significant deterioration in their self-perception, shifting back to feeling that their risk was really, really high, higher than it, than it really was. But those who got enhanced counseling not only uh, had perhaps a better understanding at the very beginning, but it was durable, more durable than, than the standard counseling. Uh, this just came out this month, so another 2019 reference. Uh, and so this is an example of how uh, there may be ways uh, or strategies, and it may depend on who the individual is and what their what their preferences for how to express things, numbers and risks, but there are probably better ways to, to convey to patients and, and get it to sink in and, and not be something that just <clears throat> evaporates from their thinking uh, as time goes on. And so I wanted to, there are, that's, that's the last slide I have, there are, uh, Dr. Domchek did touch upon some of the flip side, I mean, of what, what might happen if you start testing everybody. A lot of those genes that we talked about, they're on the list because we call them actionable. And they're actionable because there are in NCCN guidelines for how to screen these patients, you know, who to offer breast MRI, who to uh, increase colonoscopies and so forth. And only in a few examples, like colonoscopy every one to two years for Lynch, has there been enough randomized studies that actually prove that it saved lives. Uh, but it's going to be a long time before we can uh, really get the hard data that, that we've come to want to see before we do things that would show that for all of these genes or for the variety of the genes that there is some value in identifying them and, and screening them or following them a certain way. So there's, there's uh, part of this is it get, if you test everybody for a panel, you're going to get into these challenges, as I said, of VUSs and then not quite fully understanding what the right screening and prevention strategies is. So to my mind, I think it needs to be done uh, ideally in a, in a very organized fashion. Uh, ideally, um, some of the, uh, um, what do you call them, consortia that we have that, that uh, bring together genomics, somatic, or germline, uh, but that these patients should be um, tested and then followed in a, in a registry kind of fashion rather than just letting them, letting them go. But um, uh, I want to open it up for, for discussion at this point.
last question. Yeah. I see frequently on the television ads for various services where you can send in a cheek swab or something and get back this nice genetic panel. Are you seeing an uptick in patients who come in with some information already that may or may not be useful, but that you need to deal with because this is what they they think it represents their genetic profile? We've seen it. I, I don't know that there's much of, of an uptick of it. Uh, um, a lot of those uh, are that are that you can just do on your own, like um, 23andMe, uh, are are either very l select mutations. So in the BRCA1 and 2, they, they, I, I believe it's just the three predominant Jewish uh, founder mutations they test for, and then a number of SNPs. So it is not, uh, for any gene, it is not comprehensive genomic testing. Sure. Uh, but, but sometimes they'll do it, and then uh, I think, is Mark here? Godier? He had, a, he had a referral apparently recently who uh, com comes in because she was found to have a JAK2 SNP. Totally cancer-free, no, no hematological problem, but wanted to see a hematologist because she did this test and it told her she has some kind of a, a JAK2 SNP that increases her risk for some sort of uh, bone marrow problem. So it's, uh, they're, they're not really helpful uh, in this regard, and they may be um, unhelpful in this regard also because it, it, it may think, people may think that they're getting what I'm talking about, but they're not. I get to Gabe. That also reminds me, there, there are also some companies, some like Geisinger, that, that are embarking upon this, you know, broad, even whole genome testing f for everybody. So they're offering their entire, uh, I actually can't remember, is it their patient population or their employees? Primary so, care. Primary care. Primary care and I was yeah. going to ask you, Brent, so we got that kind of a solicitation as well. And it said it was whole genome sequencing, um, but with looking in five areas in particular, heart attack, but breast cancer was on the list, and I was, I went, why was breast cancer on the list? For uh, because, uh, well, it, it, was, it would advise you, I think, on when your mammography. Oh. Uh, the, uh, I don't know. I, don't, I, I guess I'm not sure exactly what they're looking at, because it wouldn't, shouldn't be just, just breast if they're doing whole genome or whole exome testing. Okay. Asco just issued an original clinical opinion or clinical opinion that, that all pancreatic cancer patients should be getting um, testing for germline mutations. And it, one of the difficulties is that we don't have any effective screening for pancreatic cancer. So it's um, I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out how we're going to implement, you know, how, how we would implement that here, um, universal testing, because um, are we using pancreatic cancer as an index um, case for finding people at risk for breast cancer, or we have better, or we have better screening strategies. It's, it's a little bit of a difficult. It's, I'm trying to figure out how to. It's a hard sell. It's not. It's unlike we have no specific reason why this is known to benefit you. It may help us choose your therapy, but but even that is not 
known? Um, and do I tell them it will help find people in your family who are at risk for breast cancer? It is a complicated message. Right, right. Um, and uh, but that has to be part of the message uh, that 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 it can uh, that these genes are associated with other cancers, uh, or that as doing so they can be part of uh, of an ongoing registry that might. Or, or their relative might be able to uh, someday participate in, you know, they, if they're part of registry, then they get notified of a, a new clinical trial of looking at um, uh, MRI or, or ultrasound, uh, endoscopic ultrasounds for pancreatic cancer. So just because it doesn't exist um, for carriers of, of pancreatic genes who aren't affected, well, probably in some ways it doesn't exist because there, there hasn't been the demand for it because we don't know, know these people. So... Where's where's the egg and where's the chicken? Yeah, no, I'm not against it. I just yeah. don't, I don't quite know how to It's hard. It. You're right. And in part, that's why, and, you know, and furthermore, if, if you truly mainstream this, you, there's no way. So mainstream, part of mainstreaming would include, would involve a lot of the studies that do it is no genetic counselor involvement pre-test. The genetic counselors, which is a resource that's, that's, that's quite limited throughout the country, uh, they get engaged if there's a positive result, or maybe even a VUS, but not at the, at the front end. And because for all of these, the, the discussion of what are the possible genes and what are the possible outcomes and how might this, you know, well, we might get a P53 or we might get a fumarate hydratase or something like that is, is overwhelming, especially if you talk about doing it at the time of diagnosis where they're already overwhelmed. Um, and so... Part of mainstreaming is sort of shoving that a little bit under the under the carpet until you need to deal with it if you have a positive result. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar case yesterday. Um, although the person was unaffected, but had two family members with pancreatic cancer, and that was like his main concern. And uh, we sort of started talking because I think there was oh he didn't even report breast cancer on his mother, right? He had breast cancer at 45, and then had pancreatic cancer at 69. But as I was going over the family history, he mentioned that, and he mentioned that his grandmother with pancreatic cancer as well and breast cancer. And he had this like aha moment when I was like, well, different people present in a different way, you know. And well, then he mentioned that his sister's a physician, but she doesn't want to know this information. And we sort of talked about the significance really of mutations in BRCA2 being even more, having more implications for her if she was positive. So it, it's. Yeah, it is. They're interesting conversations, you know, to have and kind of bring it up. And the more of these get identified, I mean, if you recall from Dr. Donchick's slide that had the, the <laughs> guidelines, I mean, it's it's like it's like the worst Chinese restaurant, right? Your patient can have A as long as a first degree relative has B or C. If B was before the age of fifty, and and oh, and if there's metastatic prostate, then that, I mean, they're getting more complicated as we understand how the genes. Can, can increase the risk for a variety of cancers. Um, and we're just tying ourselves up in knots, trying to figure out who to test and, and who not, and so forth. Yeah. So if someone is tested and, um, you know, they have family history, um, and then a handful of years go by and they actually now are in the cancer patient, do you consider testing them again? Maybe the panels are better? Maybe so do you do it a second time? So uh, we do have this problem already where people we had had referred to us who we did, let's say, just BRCA1 and BRCA2 in, I don't know, what, 2001, let's say, 
um, and got a negative result. Well, now that not only is that test for those two genes much better, but there are other genes. And so uh, I'm, I'm bedeviled almost every other week by Gary. Should I send her back? Should I send her back? You tested her already. Do you need to see her again? I'm not every week, but <laughs> when, it's, when it's appropriate. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's the pro that's, that is a problem uh, or a challenge. And perhaps, yes, depending on the, on the disease and, of course, and what the size of the panel was you did before. Of course, their DNA won't change, their germline. Uh, but you might have to retest them. You mentioned the idea of moving from kind of predicting a lifetime risk to a 10-year risk. Could you maybe speak to the idea, you know, how accurately we can kind of predict currently the that you know, age-specific penetrance? As you know, is that something you know, using BRCA variants, for example, for breast cancer? Is that something that's going to have a lot of heterogeneity in it as we you know, build in more? robust models using you know, SNPs whose effects may propagate up to those kind of core genes and like medium penetrance variants? Definitely. Yeah, so uh, as time goes on, because none of those penetrance curves I show you are mutation specific, they're just gene specific. And there clearly will be for some genes, and there already are for some, uh, that truncating mutations are different from missense mutations in terms of risk. Uh, so our, uh, our understanding of whether it's SNPs or where in the gene the mutation occurs um, that, that, that would change those penetrance estimates. Another reason why doing this as a, as a nationwide consortium rather than each individual group by themselves and, you know, this group's got two uh, NBNs and one, you know, you're just never going to get enough numbers. Um, you think there's potential for those estimates to change dramatically within you know, what we currently estimate and say to people what their 10-year risk is, you know, based on you know, improving, you know, improving uh, robust models, incorporating more of those you know, low-penetrant SNPs and medium-penetrant variants. I think those could, you know, could have people with BRCA variants with wildly different um, risk curves. Well, it depends on your, on your definition of wildly different or dramatically different. I mean, we already know, and it's uh, years ago when I did this kind of a talk, I, I would often make the point that the penetrance estimates that are reported when the first gene is first found are generally much higher than the penetrance estimates that derive from studies of, let's say, a consecutive series of patients. Because the first group were patients who had a very strong family history, because that was the group that was used to first ferret out the gene and see its prevalence. Um, and so some elements of family history, whether they be SNP identifiable or not, were playing a role. And so the penetrance curves would come down. So whereas before we might say there's an 85% chance of, a, of a, some kind of cancer for a BRCA1 carrier, now it may, for some populations, it may be down to 60. But whether they're between 60 and 80 or, you know, it's the, perhaps that degree of differences um, from what we've seen so far. Yeah. What do you um, tell patients when they are interested in having testing done if they want to understand the cost? Huh. So, um, yeah, the, the, um, the cost. So it's much less. It's much less now <laughs> than $3,000. Um, and uh, uh, color is $250, I believe. Uh, $250, Invitae is $250. 
So 250 is the going rate. Do I hear? Uh -huh. Do I hear 200? Uh, so that, that you, for 250, you can do a good panel. What are, what are the legal protections for this copywriting disclosure of this information to payers? What are the legal requirements for disclosing some unexpected results? You're testing for pancreas cancer predisposition, and you find a gene that increases the risk of anesthesia. You yeah. So, so there are when you well, if you're doing a panel, then you've already chosen which genes you're looking at, and and you're sort of obligated to discuss those results. But if you embark upon whole exome or whole genome testing, uh, there are there are there are have been always there have been guidelines for quite some time from American, American College of Medical Genetics. I think the list is up to 59 now of genes. Uh, uh, not all the cancer ones we think are important are on there, but but many of them are, and also hyperthermia, cardiomyopathies, conduction defect, um, heritability. So there's, there is a group where it is indicated that you must um, convey that information to the patient uh, at the time. Now, as far as conveying it elsewhere, I mean, if, if it's a result that uh, justifies and is the basis for embarking upon some interventions or screening MRIs or colonoscopies at a frequency that normally insurance company would not agree to, well, then they, they need to know why. Um, and then, um, so it, it gets in the chart. It's hard to not have it in the chart. Um, uh, we, if, if those of you who've seen our letters where we convey results, we've, we've always had a sentence in there that we're thinking about lessening it because it scares people, but um, that says that, and I think it's still the case, New Hampshire law uh, requires that if you're, before you convey that result outside of, of your chart, you need written authorization, specifically for the genetic test result. Um, but uh, I think we're getting to the point where it's really probably, hopefully not going to be felt to be that different from any other medical information and in in its restrictions for conveying. Yeah. There's no way that, that Epic propagates, like, if, if you, it'd be interesting if there was a way for Epic to say, this person, patient's mother has a BRCA mutation or, or uh, um, yeah, all, all, from the record one patient communicating with the, the record. I, I don't think patient records are connected in any way okay. based on family. And, and as, as Susan said, you can you could put it on the problem list, and then someone can take it off <laughs> anytime, not knowing what it was or accidentally. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think there's any linking like that. So you're talking about families where you can trace heritability, but there are some non-conventional families where some kids are part of the family through adoption or other mechanisms where there's no known health history of the biological um, ancestor. So in those cases, do you recommend that the individual be tested even if they don't have cancer so they know their family history? Well, the test won't tell them their family history. So you mean testing people not only regard, without regard to, to, to guidelines. What, uh, so what I'm proposing is if they got cancer, yes. I'm not yet, uh, uh, I'm not at the point where I'm saying all, everybody walking on this earth at a certain age should be tested. That has been proposed by Mary Todd King, who discovered BRCA1 for BRCA1 and 2. 
all women at the age of 30 should be offered genetic testing. And she refrained from doing that until she had data uh, where she uh, felt that it was that showed that the risk that we know to associate to those pathogenic mutations that, that is found in families applies also to individuals who don't have a family history. Um, now, that data was limited to the Ashkenazi uh, mutations that they did in Israel, but she felt that bef you know, before offering testing to unaffected people without regard to family history, you need to have some data that the mutation, again, in, in the absence of any family history is, rel is important. Um, so that's, uh, and, and I, that, that I can agree with, but to do that, one would have to, and it would be forever. I think, before we had enough data like that for all the genes and all the possible mutations. So it's, there's going to be a point where we just have to take a leap or not. Yeah. And then so on that topic, topic, do you know, um, do you have a sense of what the, uh, like, so in the beginning you were sharing the positivity rate for some of the different cancer types. Do you know what those, so it was 8 or 15 percent uh, on the, some of those panels. Do you know what those rates would be if you uh, used those panels in the general population? Um, is, it, is it less than one percent that would be the general population that would be positive, or I don't know? Uh, I think that would be sort of yeah important sort of figure out whether you should. Yeah, well, if you add up the prevalence of each one, uh, you probably get close to one percent. I'm just guessing, depending on how size your panel is. Chuck. Yeah, if you consider the more complicated testing, exome and whole genome. What's the cost, including the analysis of the data for each of those? Yeah, well, that's probably, but you're probably back up into the thousands again, or maybe just a thousand, people say. It's including a, analysis of whole genome. Yeah. 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 1,500 now um, to, to do that. But clearly, the analysis is a big part of it. Um, definitely. Other, we're near the end, but any, so hopefully, there's been. Uh, um, thought-provoking, and hopefully over time, this, it'll give you an idea of where we might be headed in genetic testing, and, and uh, thank you for your attention.